Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, February 7th, 2021. The share ID numbers for Friday, February 5th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,342. That's 16342. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,343. That's 16343. This morning, A Vision for You presents The Dark Past is My Greatest Possession. Step 12 states, Having had a spiritual awakening, as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Step 12 gives us a guarantee, a promise, that if we take the first 11 steps, we will have a spiritual awakening. The result of working these steps is just that, a spiritual awakening, a psychic change, a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating. We have tapped the unsuspected inner resource of strength by working these steps, and our spirit is awakened. We are encouraged to seek a personal spiritual life empowered by a consistent practice of step 11, prayer and meditation. However, we enlarge that spiritual life through self-sacrificial service for others. There is a natural progression of turning us inside out from a life-taking habit of self-obsession to a life-giving desire for service to others. This service to others through sacrifice of ourself, is sacred work. It heals others, and at the same time, it heals us. Now we carry this message of recovery. We can now sit down with another person who has a problem similar to our own and convey an understanding that no one else can. We can say to him or to her, I've been there. Because of our experience, we can cross barriers of race and religion and every other kind, and we can understand each other in a very special and meaningful way, truly the language of the heart. The big book describes the prerequisites, attitude, and the actions of carrying the message in this way on page 18. But the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. Our past brokenness now becomes the greatest jewel of our life, 
a great source of meaning and purpose. The big book states on page 124, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. Joining us today to elaborate on this very topic is Karen T., a recovered compulsive overeater from New Orleans, Louisiana. Karen is dedicated to the 12 steps, which of course includes helping newcomers and working with others and carrying this message of of recovery. And it's with great appreciation and always a delight to welcome Karen to the line. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Leah. Can you hear me? I hear you well. Great. Thank you so much, Leah, for that fabulous introduction and for your enthusiastic endorsement for my topic. I also want to thank my friends and fellow visionaries who helped me prepare for this. They definitely did some sacred work and were did some self-sacrificial service to me, to quote what Leah just said. So, so thank you for that. And I also want to thank people who have texted me and um, to the group that is praying for me. I just really want to thank those people. But most of all, I want to thank God. And I pray that I may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. So as uh, Leah said, it's still true. My name's Karen, and I'm a recovered compulsive eater calling in from New Orleans. Everything I say here today, I probably got from someone else. That's how we do it in OA. We borrow from each other quite liberally. So if you hear something I say and you think, oh, I've heard that from someone else, you probably did. I believe I had this disease of compulsive eating from an early age. When I was about 10 or 11, my family had stopped uh, to get a treat. We had driven somewhere and we stopped the car and uh, bought a treat. I tried to eat mine as slowly as I could, but as a compulsive eater, I failed miserably. As soon as I had finished my last bite, I wanted more. My younger sister had lots of hers left, and I was jealous. She had eaten hers slowly and even appeared to be savoring it. Well, I started to pest her. I started to bug her. And I started to nag her, to please give me some of her. I was the older sister, and it just seemed right to me that she should share. And as I look back on it now, I would have to say that I bullied her. I was trying to use my power over her to get her to do what I wanted her to do. I was taught to be kind, but I could not be kind when my food was done and I wanted more. She had what I wanted and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. Another memory I remember from childhood uh, and this memory was that my eating was not normal, was at the breakfast table one morning. 
My parents and my aunt and an uncle and a few kids were at the breakfast table. And my mother had baked something that we were all sharing. We all agreed that the last portion of this should be for my sister, who had not come down for breakfast yet. That was so logical and made sense. But you may be able to guess what happened. Before I knew it, I had taken the last piece off the serving plate and was eating it. I had just agreed with everyone that the last piece was for my sister. And yet, without realizing it, I had wanted it and I had started to eat it. I couldn't explain it. Again, I was going against my sense of right and wrong by overeating. My principles failed to hold me in check. I was overweight for most of my childhood, but my compulsive overeating really progressed in college. I went to a large university, which had 16 different dining halls, and I, you got an ID card, which lets you get into any of them. Most days, I would hit four dining halls. I would go to breakfast, brunch, lunch, and dinner. I do remember going to two different dining halls one night for dinner, but this is what I would usually do. I would go to the dining hall assigned to my dorm where I knew the most people, and I would get there right when it opened. I would go through the line and find people to eat with, and I would sit down and eat dinner with them. And then I would walk out with that group from the dining hall, and then as we were sort of just outside the dining hall, I would say, oh, I forgot, I need to talk to so-and-so, and I think that person's still in the dining hall. And so I'd go back into the dining hall, go through the line again, and eat a second dinner with a second group of people. I did this many, many times. So I came into OA when I was a senior in college, and I learned that there was a disease called compulsive eating. And I was not just weak-willed, but that I had an illness, as the big book likes to call it. One symptom of this illness is that I have an allergy of the body. Once I ingest certain food ingredients, my body has an abnormal reaction. Instead of getting full, I crave more. On page XXV, I, 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 which is page 28 in Roman numerals. On that page in the big book, it says, the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is the manifestation of an allergy. An allergy. What does the big book mean by that? I don't have an allergy like I used to think it meant. I don't break, I do not break out in hives. The big book says we break out in this wonderful phrase. We break out in a phenomenon of craving. Then the big book goes on to say that these cravings never occur in the average temperate drinker or in our case eater. So that is one of the things I had to discover when I first came into OA, 
Am I really a chronic alcoholic when it comes to food? Not everyone has the same food ingredients that cause cravings. But after listening to a few people in Overeaters Anonymous and going to a few meetings, I knew for me that one of the ingredients that causes me cravings is sugar. So what does it feel like to have a craving, a powerful desire to overeat? I learned that compulsive overeaters have these cravings for food at one of the first meetings that I went to, and this explained so well why I ate the way I had eaten in childhood. But it really explained the diet I went the diet I went on as a senior in high school. I had a new lens to look back on this experience. So now I'm going to tell you this story. Some people in my senior class of high school had planned a spring break trip to Bermuda, and I decided I wanted to lose weight before the trip. I successfully lost weight I don't know how much. High school was quite a long time ago for me, but I think maybe about 20 pounds. I had inadvertently abstained from sugar, and so I had not had any cravings, and I had dieted successfully. And a few days before the trip, I decided to reward myself for my weight loss with one portion of a binge food. I thoroughly enjoyed that food, but I wanted more and I could not control how much I ate. And I just hated myself. And there was just some awful self-talk. Karen, and this is like what I remember of that self-talk. Karen, you just lost all that weight. Why can you not get back on that diet for even one day? Why did you have the willpower to resist all non-diet food for all that time, and now you have no willpower for even one day? And I would just answer myself with, well, I can't. And I would eat some food, and I was just baffled by that. My self-talk was so mean, I would never talk to anyone else that way. And what I now understand much better after coming into OA is that I had inadvertently abstained from one of my alcoholic foods, sugar. And when I chose to reward myself with that one portion of the sugary food, I had introduced sugar back into my body, and now my body had this allergic reaction, this phenomenon of craving. It was a relief to have an explanation as to why I got so out of control with food. So, I have now told you four stories about the way I used to eat, and I hope these stories have helped establish myself in your mind that I am a food addict, that I am a compulsive overeater. We all have these stories, and I have made a list of mine And I've come up with 39 stories about my abnormal eating. And I want to tell you next my best food story, which is actually my worst food story, if you will. 
It is my dark past. And this is about how I broke the law to get food. I had been in OA for eight years at this point. I was in a terrible relapse. I was married and had a three-month-old baby, and I had a bad back. And it was time to go to one of my weekly OA meetings. So my husband put the car seat into the car, and because the car seat was heavy, and uh, the plan I had was to ask someone when I got to the OA meeting to take the car seat out for me and uh, take it into the meeting so that I wouldn't have to uh, hurt my back by carrying the infant car seat around with the baby in it. Um, so off we set in the car to go to the OA meeting. And we hadn't driven very far, and I craved food. I was in relapse, and a food craving hit. So I drove into a convenience store parking lot. And I didn't want to hurt my back. And I really wanted the food. So I left the baby in the car, in the car seat, and went into the convenience store to get some binge foods. And I got what I want, wanted from the store. And the checkout line in that convenience store was very long. And where I was standing in the checkout line, I could not see the car. The window, you know, I couldn't see the car out the window. And I didn't know what to do. I was stuck. My mind was saying, Karen, you need to be able, you, you, you don't need the food this badly, but I did need the food that badly. My fear was that someone would notice that there was a baby alone in the car and call the police, and the police would come and um, arrest me or something. I don't even know, but. Um, I had left my baby alone, my three-month-old baby alone in the car, and I couldn't get out of the line. So finally, the line, I moved up in the line, and now I could see the car. And I could see that there was no one peering in the windows, and there was no one around. And I felt a little bit better, but... I also thought, well, someone may have already called 911 and the police could be on their way. And I just remember staring at the car and hating myself for not being able to just get out of the line and go back to my child. The person right before me in line seemed to take forever. Uh, I, just, I was just so agitated by that point. But I finally got my turn, paid for my food, and went out to the car. And the baby was fine, but I was not. And so I opened the back seat door to the car, and I stood there because I had the bad back. And um, 
I started singing to my baby to try and make some sort of amends for just leaving him in the car. So I was singing, but also crying at the same time. I had tears coming down my cheeks, and I was eating the food that I just bought. So I just have this memory of myself. It's like it was yesterday for me, standing, singing, crying, and eating all at the same time. So now I have told you five stories. Why am I telling stories? The big book answers that question better than I can. And I want to quote something on page 18. And it actually is the same quote that Leah used in her introduction. So that's pretty cool. And it says this, the ex-problem drinker who has found the solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. So my stories are facts about myself, which I can tell to hopefully win a little bit of your confidence. And what do I want to accomplish by that? I want to show you that if you are a compulsive overeater like me, there is a proven workable method which can arrest our illness, and that is to find a higher power who solves our problem. The big book uses a lot of stories. Not just the stories in the back of the book that um, have been compiled and revised over the years. But the first chapter of the big book, called The Doctor's Opinion, has some stories in it. It was written by Dr. Silkworth. He used the stories of two alcoholics, and they are on page XXXI, that's page 31 in Roman numerals of the big book. One of the stories he uses is about the trembling, nervous wreck. And the second story is at the bottom of that same page. And it is about the alcoholic who had hidden in a deserted barn determined to die. Because he himself was not an alcoholic, Dr. Silkworth had to use other people's stories. But we use our own. The next chapter in the big book, it's actually chapter one, is entitled Bill's Story. Here we go. After the doctor's opinion, we get a story. The big book was written for someone who did not have the benefit of 12-step meetings. This book is supposed to carry the entire message by itself. So many people believe that chapter one, Bill's Story, is taking the place of a speaker that we might now hear at a meeting or on a special edition. I've heard it said many times in OA that when we read Bill's story, we try to identify with the thoughts and the feelings that he had. I read through Bill's story and I found within his 
chapter, 14 stories that talk about his drinking. Some of them are long and some of them are short. For example, he just says that he had a brawl with a taxi driver. That's all the story we get about that. But you know there's a big story behind that. And later on, he talks about when he had to drag his mattress to a lower floor in his house in case he chose to jump from the window. I could really identify with that story, with the thoughts and feelings behind that story. In some of the stories that I've already told you about myself, I have talked about the mental anguish of those conflicting voices within my head, and I can just imagine Bill's internal conflict in this, his story. He wanted to live, but part of him wanted to jump out the window. It sort of maybe went like, I might jump, but I don't want to die. I might jump, but I don't want to die. And for me, it was, I need to get out of this convenience store line, but I can't. I need to get out of this convenience store line, but I can't. Most of the Bill's stories, I noticed, are stories about the phenomenon of craving. He had alcohol in his system, and he wanted more and more. And the alcohol made him do things that were against his sense of right and wrong. For instance, fighting with that taxi driver. But two of the stories of Bill's talk about times when he was sober and he went back to drinking. So the big book also outlines this second phenomenon that we have. Why is it that once we get sober from our alcoholic foods, we still want them? Page 23 in the big book talks about this very well. Just before the part I am going to read, it observes how the phenomenon of craving makes it virtually impossible for us to stop eating once we start. The first two sentences of the first full paragraph on page 23 read, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. I have an allergy to sugar. Once I start, I, I can't stop. I have a phenomenon of craving when I eat sugar. So I shouldn't have it. I have a bad reaction, but yet I want it. And it's kind of like, well, let me put it this way. If I found out that I was allergic to penicillin, I would always remember that I am allergic to penicillin. And it would not be a problem in my life unless a doctor prescribed penicillin and I took it. I would not have to go to Penicillin Anonymous 
Yet, when I'm told that I have an allergy to sugar, I need to go to Overeaters Anonymous. I cannot, there's something about my mind that is not as simple and logical. I'm talking about logic a lot. There's some problem there. The big book calls this problem in our mind a strange mental blank spot or the obsession of the mind. And there's a whole chapter in the big book devoted to this, and it's called More About Alcohol, More About Alcoholism. And what do you know? There are four stories in this chapter. The four stories are the man of 30, a guy they call Jim, the jaywalker, and another man um, named Fred. And I would like to read a little bit of Fred's story now. The part I want to read starts on page 40. And this is about the strange mental blank spot or the obsession of the mind. This section of Fred's story is told from the point of view of the recovered AA members who are trying to help him. And it's the first full paragraph there. It's where it starts. We heard no more of Fred for a while. One day we were told that he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. The story, so, so, so they, so I just want to stop there. So he indicated he was anxious to see them, these AA members. So basically, he called a sponsor, right? And the story he told is most instructive. So the sponsors let him tell his story. And for the next couple of pages of the big book, he tells his story. Um, and that helps him realize that he has this obsession of the mind. But I want to point out something to you on page 42. If you turn to page 42, I'm going to start with the first full paragraph. And the story is now from Fred's point of view. And he said, two of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I did not like so much, and then asked me if I thought myself alcoholic and if I were really licked this time. I had to concede. I'm sorry, I just lost my place. I had to concede both propositions. They piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality such as I had exhibited in Washington was a hopeless condition. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do my, the job myself. So these two members that came to visit Fred cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. They told their step one stories and they had them by the dozen. Now, I kind of like math and there were two of them and it says by the dozen. So maybe each one of them had six stories. 
But still, they had cases out of their own experience that they could use to help Fred see. And what did they help Fred see? That he was in a hopeless condition except for divine help. So I want to challenge you, all you out there, to come up with cases or stories out of your own experience so that you can help others. You never know when you're going to meet your next Fred. I think of my stories as a bunch of arrows sitting in a quiver on my back, you know, um, a container on my back. I might be talking to someone about step one, and as I am conversing, I'm trying to figure out which story to pull out of my quiver and use to shoot at some of the denial that we all have around admitting that we are bodily and mentally different from our fellows. So I believe denial needs to be fought. It needs to be fought in my own life, but it also is very important for people who are new to OA or in relapse or anyone really because I still have to fight my own denial. Um, It's hard to admit that we are bodily and mentally different from our fellows. And by the way, that's a paraphrase from page 30. So um, it's a fight that we're in. And uh, I believe that telling our stories can really help. We can't be sure, but I think that in this story about Fred, that these were all cases about the obsession of the mind. If we read read part of this paragraph again, it says, they piled on heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality, such as I had exhibited in Washington, was a hopeless condition. So some of the arrows in my quiver need to be stories about the strange mental blank spot, the mental alcoholic mentality that precedes the first drink. One of the stories I've already told you was about that. The story of my high school diet before going on that spring break trip is the one that I'm thinking of. I had successfully dieted for a while and had inadvertently abstained from sugar And then the thought crossed my mind that I had done so well that I should reward myself with one sugary treat. So the strange mental blank spot was that I needed a treat for my self-discipline and that the treat should be sugar. I was not in OA yet, and so this is an example yet. But it's not a very substantial one or it didn't, I didn't, have the knowledge, so the fact that I couldn't remember the knowledge, not that incredible. It's been my experience that stories of the strange mental blank spots are hard to come by. They're difficult for me to find and put into my arsenal of stories. And maybe that's because they are when I'm not really thinking straight, so why would I remember them? So when I first came into OA in 1988, I had a year of abstinence, what some people like to call pink cloud abstinence. And then I had four major relapses, 
in the first eight years that I was in OA. Part of my dark past is at my highest weight ever, which is 65 pounds, more than I am now, and I'm now at my healthy goal weight. That my highest weight was when I had been in OA for eight years already. And that was when my most binging, including the day that I left my baby in the convenience store parking lot, because I had already been in OA for eight years. And I have no memory of how my four major relapses started. I have searched my mind to remember the moment that I first picked up sugar and I can't find anything. Now for those first eight years in program, I did not study the big book and I did not have good sponsorship. Or perhaps I had good sponsorship, but I just couldn't hear it. That's common too, I found. So I was not encouraged to look for that thought that preceded the relapse. Directions to do that are right in the big book. I found them on page 35. The paragraph that mentions this happens to be the exact paragraph that will be read and studied tomorrow, February 8th, on both the 7 a.m. and the 10 a.m. Eastern meetings of A Vision for You. How cool is that? So at the bottom of page 35, it says, uh, this is about Jim. So it's one of the stories in the chapter, more about alcoholism. And the we is people in AA, and the him is Jim. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled, and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. To his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. See that? He, the people of AA worked with him on each one of the occasions that he got drunk and reviewed carefully what had happened. So the next time someone calls me and says they have binge or acted out with food, I am going to ask them to tell their story. And I pledge to review it carefully to see what the thought that preceded the, fir- the food problem was because that is what a good sponsor did for me. Can I help someone capture the story? So since I had those four huge relapses, I have had three smaller relapses. And I remember the thought that preceded the first compulsive bite for the last two. So now I wanna tell you another story the story about how my obsession with food returned and I had a strange mental blank spot and picked up sugar after years of abstaining from it. This is a major arrow in my quiver quiver of stories and I use it often to tell about my mental obsession when it comes to sugar. 
Nine years ago, I had been abstinent for more than three years at the time, and I had gone away with my family on a trip, and I had failed to enlarge my spiritual life. For about, I think, four days, I didn't have a morning prayer meditation time or really do anything during the day to check in with my higher power. And we were at the airport to fly back home. It was an early morning flight, so I had decided to pack my breakfast and eat it once we were through security before we got on the plane. One of the things I had planned to eat for breakfast at the time, and I ate every day, was eight ounces of milk. And because you can't take milk through the security checkpoint, my plan was to buy milk once we got near our gate. So I found a place that had a 12-ounce container of cow's milk and an 8-ounce container of soy milk. Even though I usually have cow's milk, I thought to myself that I had been meaning to try soy milk and how convenient that it was already in an 8-ounce container. So So I bought it and went back to my gate seat. And before I even opened it, I thought to myself, hmm, Soy milk bought at an airport. That's not going to be unsweetened soy milk. I bet it has sugar in it. And I looked at the container, and sure enough, it did. Now, I had been in OA for 23 years at that point, training myself that I have an allergy to sugar and I should never have it. I had sort of been brainwashing myself that sugar is deadly for me. Not for everyone, and not for everyone in OA, mind you, but I have been brainwashing myself that for me, sugar can be deadly because it can cause the phenomenon of craving, and I could die a death from it, spiritually and a physical death from overeating. But the fact that I was allergic to sugar did not cross my mind. Instead, my thought was, oh, it just doesn't matter, and I drank it. That is what I call a strange mental blank spot. I want to challenge all of you out there to properly arm yourself with your own stories about your eating. I have gone back through my life's memories starting from when I was very little and working my way up to the present. And that helped me remember some stories. Some of my stories are concoctions of foods that I like to put together, and others are more specific. Also, listening at meetings helped me to remember other stories. Perhaps this this talk of mine today has helped you to remember some of your own stories. And I really hope that that is true. And I've actually said to people who are brand new in OA, when I've called them on the phone, I've asked them if it would be okay for them if I told them one of my step one stories because it will help me work step 12 and it might help them to hear about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. Every newcomer approached this way has been willing to listen to one of my stories. And so I take one out of my quiver and I go for it. 
Here is another quote from the big book which illustrates this point. It's from the chapter called The Family Afterwards. Leah's already actually quoted it. And it speaks of the whole family telling other families how to help newcomers. So the paragraph that I want to read is on page 124. Um, and it's, I guess, the second full paragraph on the page. This painful past, our painful past, may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problem. We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not. And when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only too willing to bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life so worth living to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. So, we have to put our past into God's hands and have to ask God to help us use it so that we can help do our own little part to help our higher power avert death and misery for others. I think this paragraph is not just talking about our dark past of eating, but our dark past of all areas of our life. But for the purposes of this talk, I want to stress how yours and my food stories can help newcomers or anyone in relapse find a way out of denial. So here's the thesis statement for my whole talk. Everything I have just said brings me to this. All of the work of cataloging and building an arsenal or quiver full of stories is to help carry the message. My stories will help others, but not me. You see, stories are a form of self-knowledge and memories, and those will not help me when I have a strange mental blank spot. Let's turn together to page 24, and I want to read the italicized paragraph on that page. The italics say, the fact is that most alcoholics, for reason yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. Memory is just another word for story. We cannot remember our own stories of suffering and humiliation. So please catalog all your stories, categorize them to help newcomers and others, but they won't help you when you might have a strange mental blank spot. On page 43 of the big book, 
the very last part of the chapter, more about alcoholism, it says, the alcoholic at times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. So what will help me and you stay abstinent day after day, year after year? The answer for that is also found on page 43. Our defense must become from a higher power. So a higher power or God. We need to work steps 2 through 12. So I have not had any kind of sugar. I'm just checking my time. I have not had any kind of sugar since that day in the airport nine years ago. It's helped many people to hear about what happened after I drank that soy milk. I got on the plane, and by the grace of God, I realized that I had just made a terrible mistake. I had just had sugar on purpose. I know, I knew that there was sugar in that soy milk, and I drank it anyway. I immediately told my husband, and as soon as I sat down in my airplane seat, I started writing on my phone a long email to my sponsor. I think that is why I remember the story so well, because I wrote it down right away. I knew my sponsor would want to know the whole story, and I knew that there was something terribly wrong with my program. As soon as the plane landed, I took my phone out of airplane mode, and I sent that email from my airplane seat to my sponsor. I realized immediately that I needed to be honest about this as quickly as possible. I believe we are as sick as our secrets. I believe my higher power carried me through any cravings of my body might have had because of my rigorous honesty and my repentance. I was able to stay abstinent. When I talked to my sponsor later that day, she said, Karen, you should have recoiled as from a hot flame. There must be something wrong with your spirituality. And she was absolutely right. She then told me I was back on step one and then I needed to let go of my sponsees. Since I was spiritually sick, my ego was involved. And so it was very hard for me to make those phone calls. Some of those former sponsees are on the line today and I know they remember it too. I worked through the steps quickly And as usual, miracles happen when I do step work. My loving higher power sent me a miracle of healing around my relationship with my husband that had been plagued by a fear. So I am here to tell you that the problem in the airport has turned out to be a huge blessing in my life. I have had neutrality around my food ever since I finished that step work and I now consider myself recovered for eight and a half years, thanks to my loving higher power, great sponsorship, and the directions in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It works when we work it. Thank you so much for letting me share some of my step one stories with you and for reaffirming how these steps can restore us to sanity and how our dark past is now our greatest possession because we can use it to help others. And with that, I pass. Back to you, Leah. Thank you so much, Karen. 
for your beautiful and inspiring presentation this morning. Thanks for pulling some of those arrows out of your quiver and highlighting them for all of us today. Greatly appreciated. The share ID for this presentation, 16,354. That's 16354. Karen's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you will stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question-answer segment. You can pose a question to Karen by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Who has a question today? Lydia um, T. Lydia T. Stacy A. Stacy A. Marsha B. Freya H. Marsha B. Freya H. Anyone else want to get into this group? Christina J. Christina J. Okay, we'll start with this group. Everybody, please mute except for Lydia T. Hi, um, thank you for your story, Karen. It was very um, enlightening and wonderful, um, especially to hear your voice. My question is, is after you drank that soy milk and you drank the sugar, and that was the, you know, the obsession of the mind or the, you know, the strange mental blank spot, and you wrote the letter to your sponsor, did that set up the... Um, the allergy of the body and were you craving for a time and how did you deal with that aspect of the relapse? So that's my question. Lydia, thank you so much for the question. Thank you for being here. Um, I was so freaked out that I had had sugar and I knew that it was really serious. And so I was agitated for sure uh it was not only agitation of my mind but it was hard to sit in that airplane seat and i had this pit in my stomach of dread of what have i just done and so i had this sense that i really could not eat anymore and uh, so I don't know if my how uh, I'm sure my body was involved in that and I'm I'm sure that I was having cravings but for some reason God saved me from having to eat more sugar and I can't explain it it's another phenomenon if you will I, I can't explain it but um, it did not lead to me eating more sugar I know that's the fact but was I experiencing cravings? I don't know. Um, but I really believe it was a spiritual thing that even though I had put sugar into my body, that I did not have to continue to overeat. Um, so I consider it a miracle, really. And I do consider that a relapse because I ate sugar and picked up, and so I went back to step one. I hope that answers your question, Lydia, and that I pass. Thanks, Lydia, for the question. Stacy A., your turn. 
Um, Lydia, you had the sugar. Did your body kind of go into shock a little bit? Stacy, thank you for that question. Um, yes, my body went into shock. My mind went into shock. Everything went oh. into shock. Okay. Um, so I hope that that answer, yeah. along with what I just said to Lydia, will yeah. answer that for you. Yep. Yeah, because I'm, I'm a Love newcomer. It. Thanks. Great. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah, you no, know, I'm like just about a week into this, and your story just, uh, it touched the heart. And just thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much. Thank oh, you. Oh, you're welcome. Please get my number at the end of the recording. Thank you, Stacy, and welcome to you. Marsha, I think it was Marsha B., although I could be incorrect. Yeah, Marsha D. is in David. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for your share, and I especially like your introduction, how you brought others into prayer as you were going to prepare for this today. Um, my question is, how can we... Hang on a second. I just had a call that interrupted. How can we be sure the stories in the big book can apply to food? You know, isn't alcohol different? Marcia, thank you so much. Great question. We can't be sure, but the thing is that people who have the disease of compulsive eating have really related to the big book a lot. And so... I believe that when we go through the big buck one-on-one with a sponsor, um, that the sponsor can, or the guide, if you will, um, the big book never uses the word sponsor. We can say a guide or an experienced member um, can help relate each word in the big book to food. And it has been the experience of many people that, the words in the big book do relate to food in some way. And I think that's one of the jobs of the newcomer is, do I think I'm a chronic alcoholic when it comes to food? Do I really believe that I have this disease? I once read through the big book with um, this really nice lady, and uh, we got to the point uh, where I said so, what do you think? Does this apply to you? And she said, no, I don't think it does. And I said to her, I think I agree with you. And uh, we parted ways. She actually left OA. And um, I saw her about five years later, um, socially around here. And um, she still doesn't believe she's a compulsive reader. She still is fine with her food. And so uh, we need to determine that for ourselves and we need to figure out for ourselves. But for most people who are compulsive overeaters, they can really relate to the big book. Thanks for the question. Thank you, Marsha. Appreciate it. Freya H., star one to unmute. Good morning, this is Freya H. Um, Karen, thank you very much for your presentation this morning and for sharing uh, so much of yourself. Um, and I'm curious to hear more about the story about the, the soy milk. Um, you had mentioned what preceded it was going on vacation and letting down on your spiritual practices. And I guess I'd just love to hear um, 
just more about, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, the food is the last thing to go. So, um, so it, in your, in all of the reflection and going back to step one, did you discover, you know, where you, um, where you lost that connection with your higher power or other things that came up that were maybe lacking in your program that had helped contribute to that, um, that relapse? I hope that makes sense. Freya, thank you. It does make sense. And I was kind of hoping that someone would ask me that question. So um, I had been uh, visiting my family over the holidays, and there were uh, 12 of us living in one house. And um, I had let go of my spiritual disciplines. Being on vacation, um, I had been staying up late at night to play games with some of my family members and waking up early the next morning and rushing downstairs to help the adults with the children um, and uh, sort of burning the candle at both ends, but not taking care of the most important relationship in my life, which is my relationship with my higher power. For some reason, I got very confused and thought my relationships with my family were more important. And uh, I had an appointment to call my sponsor, and I did call her, and she didn't answer, and I was so relieved because I could go back to what I was doing. And I, I sent her a text and we made up another time to call, but it was after I was going to get home from the airport. So, um, uh, so, so now I really try and have disciplines in my life that keep me close to God. Oh, I, I had some sponsees at the time, Freya also, and um, I had kind of implied that because I was going to be so busy with my family that maybe we wouldn't be able to talk. So I had selfishly put my own needs and wants ahead of helping others. And that doesn't work so well, as we can see by my example. So thank you so much for the question. I hope that answers it some. Um, and uh, I really had to look at why do I stop doing the things that keep me abstinent and sane, and instead want to, I don't know how to say it exactly, be with my family or uh, have fun or be in some sort of trip family, trip mode that doesn't include my higher power. So thank you for the question, Freya. Yes, thank you. Christina J., your turn. Star one to unmute. Good morning. Thank you, everyone, for your service, Leah, and uh, everyone that helps keep this meeting going. It's a miracle, and it's a gift in my life. Um, yeah, my question is, you said your sponsor had taken you back to step one right mm -hmm. away. Did she then take you through the rest of the steps uh, on a review basis or, or treat it like you were a brand-new newcomer with fresh eyes? And then the second part is, today, how do you proceed with your own sponsor work with a sponsee who has possibly relapsed. Thank you very much. Thanks, Christina. 
yes, she took me back through the steps. And yes, she implored me that I needed to have fresh eyes because what I had been doing hadn't been working. So I needed to have an open mind to try something new. And so, yes, I had to fresh, fresh eyes. You know, recently I've really been loving the set-aside prayer, which comes loosely from page 46 of the big book, this idea that I have to lay aside any of my prejudices that I have so that I can have a new experience and have an open mind. Um, so, yes, I went back through the steps. I um, did a thorough fourth step, fifth step, made some amends, the whole thing, and I consider myself um, recovered from when I finished that step work. Um, I think that I might have forgotten part of your question, but I think that answered most of it. Thank you. Thank you. Can you still hear me, Leah? Yes, I do. Uh, the second part was, how do you work with your sponsees? Uh, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Christina. Sorry. I'm a, I'm a one-track mind. I can do one question at a time, I guess, today. Um, so, uh, yes, with my sponsees, we have to take it um, very seriously and uh, go back to the steps and um, for sure. And um, that's okay. And... Uh, with fresh eyes and sort of the full thing again, not just like, okay, well, you messed up on one or two, and then we're going to do this, and then kind of review, and then, you know, get you through. Um, it's more like the full deal, right? Yeah, I, 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 this is something about me and sponsoring. I, I don't have a set exact way I do it with everyone. I really feel like uh, God directs my thinking. Uh, you know yeah. how we say, God, please direct my thinking that it may be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Um, and so, uh, you know, each case seems different. But yes, there has to be some acknowledgement that there's something wrong with, you know, that I'll speak for myself. If I relapse because I failed to enlarge my spiritual life, or there's something wrong with my spirituality. And so it's really important to root that out or it's going to keep happening. So, thanks. Thanks, Christina J. Who else has a question this morning? Star 1 to unmute, I need your the name. Loretta H. Loretta H. Hello. in Fort Worth. Elizabeth G. Elizabeth G. Yep. Mary. Mary Hi. T. Mary T. Penny E. South Jersey. Hey, Penny. Penny E. Leela R. Leela R. Is that correct? Leela. Okay, gotcha. Thus far, I have Loretta H. Elizabeth G. Mary T. Penny E. Leela R. Is there somebody I missed? Seneca T. Seneca T. Okay, very good. Loretta H., you're up. Everybody else, please mute. Good morning, Leia, and good morning, Karen. Thank you, thank you for being a service and saving my life. As you, everybody on this line does every day. Uh, this, my question is, 
what do you do today to enhance your spiritual practice and how do you work one through 12 every day? That's my question. Thank you so much for the question, Loretta. Um, I have a step 11 partner, we call it. Someone who, um, you know how in the big book on page, here, let me get my big book out again. On page 80, 80, um, six. It has a whole bunch of questions when we retire at night. We review our day. So reviewing my day helps me stay in fit spiritual condition. And I um, talk to my 11-step partner once a day. And so I do a review once a day. Sometimes it's in the morning. Sometimes it's at night whenever we make the appointment. So that really helps me to stay on track and I consider that part of my spiritual practice. So at least once a day, I am sitting down and um, doing a constructive review. Um, in the morning, when I wake up, I um, vary my practice quite a bit, but the main thing that I need to do every morning is turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And uh, shorthand for that for me is that I need to say either the third or the seventh step prayer from the big book and really mean it. And some mornings my mind is going a mile a minute and I really have to say the prayer many times until I really mean it, God. Um, Take away my difficulties. My um, creator, I'm now willing to all of me, good or bad. Remove anything that is blocking my usefulness to you and to my fellows. Um, so that's a very important thing in the morning. And I have some, um, I belong to a religious denomination. And so I do some things for that. And sort of commune with my higher power, get in touch with my higher power seek through prayer meditation to improve my conscious contact with a higher power. I also um, have a meditation practice on page um, uh, 84. You know, it says, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. So I need to learn to watch my thoughts. And so meditation helps me watch my thoughts. That's something else I do on a daily basis. So I think the biggest thing that helps me stay abstinent is talking to other people, is carrying the message, is being of service. And when I constructively review my day, I spend a lot of time cataloging how I've been of service because I want to make sure that I keep being of service every day. And if I'm not of service one day, how can I beef that up for the next day? So, Loretta, thank you for the question. And um, for that, I pass. Thanks, Loretta H. Elizabeth G., your turn to pose a question. 
Star me? one. Yeah, I hear you. Hello? Mm-hmm. Star one to unmute Elizabeth. I don't know if you can hear me. I hear you now. Oh, okay. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you, everybody in the meeting. Very quick question. My story is one of compulsive under-eating and restricting anorexia and compulsive exercising. I love the big book, doing my binge time. I can relate so much. It really describes me. I have always had trouble translating the uh, big book stories to my over-exercising and my starving faces. I would really love to hear if there's anything you can share on that part. Thank you so much. Elizabeth, thank you for the question. Um, This is my opinion, but it's got some uh, big book backup for it. The Alcoholics Anonymous program has spun off to many different programs, like Overeaters Anonymous. And um, some of the, one of the programs, I can't decide if I want to go here or not. Okay, I don't think I do. So let me rephrase it. So, So there are people in OA who have food ingredients and some people in OA who have compulsive food behaviors, right? When we abstain from compulsive food behaviors that cause cravings. And so I believe that um, the 12 steps and the big book can help us to recover from any compulsive food behaviors we have, whether that's restricting or overexercising or anything like that. It's been my experience that this higher power, this solution of the big book, this um, working those steps, doing that inventory, making those amends, asking God to come in and relieve us of our shortcomings, of our character defects. All of that work can help us so that we no longer have to um, act on our compulsive food behaviors And better than that, we can recover where we no longer want to. We get placed in a zone of neutrality from compulsive food behaviors. So I hope hope that offers some hope. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thanks. Mary T., star one to unmute. Hi, good morning. This is... Mary, we lost Jess. Star one to unmute, please. Hi there, this is Mary G. from Minnesota. Can you hear me now? Yes. Wonderful. Um, Thank you, Leah, for your service, and thank you, Karen, um, for your wonderful share today. Um, I was just wondering if you can tell me, when you're working with your sponsors, um, how do you address or work with them um, if they are struggling with uh, steps 10, 11, or 12? Thank you. Thank you for the question. Sorry for the long pause there, Mary. I definitely heard it. I was trying to set a little prayer um, of how I was going to answer this. Um, 
I am sort of a soft sell. I'm not particularly forceful. So um, if a sponsee of mine who has recovered calls me and talks about a problem, I say, let's work a 10th step on that. We can go through that together. Or I give them the option. Do you want to work on the 10th step for that? And I have an occasion said to sponsees, uh, just want to make sure you're still doing uh, step 11 in the morning and your prayer meditation time in the morning. And um, everyone has different practices. And so we kind of review that. Um, but I just try and live by example um, and uh, share a story of mine of how the 10th step helped me or the 11th step helped me. See, these sponsees of mine have a higher power, and it's not me. And so, um, you know, once they have gotten to steps 10, 11, and 12, they should be uh, getting guidance from directly from higher power and not necessarily from me. Um, but I can be a little nudge for that, just a little, and the rest is, um, power of example and trusting God. So I hope that helps. Thanks, Mary G. And next up, Penny E. Good morning, everybody. This is Penny E. from South Jersey. Grateful to be here today. Karen, thank you so much for a very, very powerful share. And Leah, thank you. Where do I begin? I love you. But um, I, I have a question. This is Overeaters Anonymous. It's not Sugar Anonymous. It's not Flower Anonymous. I've been around a long time and uh, haven't had any relapses for over three decades. But my relapses, picking up sugar, always started with a lax, a, a weakening in the bricks coming out of the wall regarding my food. So, my, Karen, my question is this to you. I believe the, the food's the last to go. You know, sugars for me was the last to go. Um, but I started off. Have you seen? I want to try and get this clear. Did you see any uh, bricks coming out of your wall prior to picking up sugar? Things like uh, being lax in your weighing and measuring, or skipping a meal, or not finishing a meal, or something like that. Were there any warnings with your food? Thank you. Penny, thanks for the question. Um. So I've had four relapses, big relapses, and then three smaller relapses. And so I told you the story of my last relapse. But um, your question reminds me of my relapse in 2008. And when I went back and looked at that, yes, my food had started to get sloppy. At the time, I was having a snack at night. And instead of having one portion of it, some nights I would have two. Um, and I would not tell, I didn't tell my sponsor about that. Um, it just kind of grew a little bit bigger. So yes, there was a brick coming out of my wall before that. And so what I do now is that I try and notice when not even a brick is coming out of the wall, when, uh, you know, some dust is coming off of the bricks that are in the wall, that when there's a, even a little bit of problem with the border. Um, and I uh, get on my phone and I send a 
email to my sponsor called Food Anomalies. And I just write down anything weird about my food and I send it off to her. And uh, I shared it recently with a food sponsor of mine and she was like, wow, that was like nothing, Karen. And I said, yeah, well, that was a problem that was I was still thinking about. I was still thinking about um, that with my food. So, yes, I can really see that uh, in this particular relapse that my food had gotten sloppy beforehand. And I really take pains now to notice that, to inventory it, and to send that off to my sponsor. And usually my sponsor's like, thanks for sharing. But occasionally she said, hmm. And we discuss about changing my food plan or we have a discussion if she sees a pattern going on because I don't want to go back to the food. So I want to be really honest about my food with someone and be really clear. And this is for me. I need clear food boundaries. Not everyone does in LA. But for me, it has been a sense of freedom to have the boundaries. I know it's a paradox, but um, you know, how free do I want to be? We, we say a lot on these lines. And I want to be really free so I have um, uh, big bricks around my food. So thank you, Penny, for the question. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Penny. Leela R. Hello? Can you hear yes, me? Yes, I sure do. Okay. Hi, I'm Leela R. from Brooklyn. I'm a newcomer. So I discovered this beautiful community a week ago, and this is my first time speaking, so it feels a little intimidating. <laughs> Thank you for holding space for me. Um, so I started reading the big book, and... I'm a little confused about the topic of amends with relation to OA. And I don't mean this as like a, a, I know this is kind of a huge blanket statement. It just, they seemed a little clearer in the AA context. And in my personal experience, they just seem a little fuzzier in the OA context, or they they can be, at least for me. So I was wondering if you could talk about um, some examples, like for for example, with your sister, is that a situation where you would go back even to talk about child a childhood situation or in a situation with the cafeterias and like meeting with different friend groups? Um, I guess when there's not a clear definition of who was harmed, I guess, how do you think about amends? Thank you. Leela, thank you so much for the question and welcome. I actually remember the first time I shared on Vision for You and I was really scared. So yeah. kudos to you for speaking up and welcome. So glad you're thank here. You. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, for a newcomer, you don't have to worry about amends. You're not on step nine. So, you know, my experience is take it slowly one step at a time and do the work on the steps that you're on because step eight is becoming entirely ready to make the amends so step eight addresses all of the 
angst about doing the amends in step nine. There's a, there's a step just for that problem right there. And that's step eight. So I really wouldn't uh, worry about it too much. Um, I have gone back to my sister, the one I tried to bully into eating her food after I ate mine. And um, I actually told her I was doing this talk and that I was going to share that story. And she says she doesn't remember it at all. And then I realized that I, I found the word bully. And I thought, ah, oh, that's what I did. So I went back to her again. I said, I, I bullied you. And she said, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like that wasn't the only time. So I um, talked about bullying and how I was sorry that I bullied. So with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leela R. And welcome. Okay, our final question for the morning comes from Seneca T. Hi, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I so related to a lot of your stories, and they were very powerful uh, for me. My question um, stems from when you were, uh, what did it feel like to give up your sponsees? And in hindsight, how did giving up your sponsees help you? Thank you for the question. Uh, it was really hard to make those phone calls um, because my ego was involved. I, you know, it talks about selfishness in the big book, that there's hundred forms of selfishness. And one of my selfishness was I liked to be the sponsor and I liked to be the one with the answers. And, um, I uh, liked that. And so having to go to them and say that I can't sponsor you was really difficult. I had one sponsee who was abroad at the time on her own trip. And uh, I said to my sponsor, I don't want to let her go until she gets back. And uh, I think I ended up talking to her about that during her trip somehow by email or something. I don't remember. But anyway, yeah, it was really hard. It was really hard. But it helped me so much, Seneca, because I, it, it, it just said, this is serious, Karen. And my sponsor said to me, um, I'll never forget it. Um, she said to me, look, Karen, we have a responsibility to our sponsees to stay abstinent. You're not just staying abstinent, Karen, for yourself. You're staying abstinent for the sponsees that you have. And look at how the chain was broken. You know, we say sometimes we have uh, one hand in our sponsors and one hand, uh, on the other hand, is in our sponsees' hands. And um, I broke the chain. And she said, um, that is something that we need to do. So. You know, I need to keep in fit spiritual condition. I need to stay close to my higher power um, in order to be part of this fellowship. So that being said, sometimes I think I do the work out of a place of pride and fear. And so giving up my sponsees was a place of pride and fear. But I also want to do the work of OA the work of the 12 steps, the work of being a spiritual person 
from a place of love and service. So I need to look at my motives. Am I doing this out of a place of pride and fear where I'm running away from the food? Or am I doing the work and everything out of a place of love and service because I want to be of maximum service to God and those around me? Because I want to effectively carry the message? Because I want to help others? So, my motives can be from a place of pride and fear or from a place of love and service. And can I check my motives to make sure they're not self-seeking motives, but motives from God? So, with that, I pass. Thank you for that last question. It's great. Thank you. Thanks, Seneca. Thank you to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Karen, for giving so much of yourself with this beautiful presentation and your service is greatly appreciated. The share ID for this morning, 16,354. That's 16354. And we're going to close right now from page 164 from a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.